Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hi, everyone. I'm Catherine McElwain. and I'm a shareholder in the New York office of Ogletree Deacons. I'm with my colleague, Katie Desmond. We are both immigration attorneys, and today we're going to talk a little bit about options for employees who may be entered in the H-1B lottery that is currently being concluded and what options they may have if they are not selected in the lottery after however many attempts are available to them. So. Right now, we're finalizing the lottery, and the window closes at the end of this week, and we should have an update by the end of March on which cases were selected and which cases were not. So, Katie, you want to talk a little bit about what's going to happen next? Yeah, sure. So, um, once the registration window closes, USCIS will conduct the online lottery drawing. Um, So, they'll first draw 65,000 Um, slots from the regular cap. Um, After that, they'll draw an additional 20,000 from the U.S. Masters cap. Um, Now, we're expecting lower selection rates again this year, similar to what we saw last year. Um, So last year, selection rate after that initial cap drawing was just under 30 percent, which is significantly lower than what we've seen in prior years. Um, A lot of this could be attributed to the new um, H-1B registration process, which is much more employer-friendly. So in years past, I'm sure you remember, Catherine, we would prepare the physical H-1B petitions, all of the forms, supporting documents, um, checks for filing fees, certified LCA, and mail that petition over to USCIS to arrive on April 1st. Under the new process, employers can submit a uh, $10 registration fee um, and enter a very basic biographic information. Um, so it's much easier to um, enter uh, employees in the registration process, resulting in an increased number of applicants um, for that fixed 85,000 visa slots that are available. Um, so that attributes to the lower selection rate. So once we have those cases that have been selected, what happens next? Well, I guess we can talk about the lucky people first. So those that are selected will likely have a filing window of April to June where we can submit petitions on their behalf. And some of those individuals, if they're F1 students, may be subject to and and benefiting from something called cap gap, where their work authorization may be expiring prior to October, but they'll get an automatic extension of their work authorization before October while we're waiting for the H-1B to go in effect. And in the past couple of years of fun surprise, I guess, that has come with the registration being easier is that we actually have had a couple lotteries run throughout the year. Last year, there were three of them. So sometimes uh, you may think someone didn't get selected and they they may find out they're lucky later in the summer or even in the fall. I think the last uh, registration or the last lottery last year ran in November. I think it was it was pretty late. So there are, you know, lucky people. There are people who get surprised, um, but th- those are the good ones. And you know, with the lower selection rates, I think everyone does need to be 
prepared for the worst and the options for those will, will just depend on a person's citizenship, background, visa type, et cetera. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the F1s? Because I think they're they're probably the common ones. Yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, usually the, the largest percentage of those entering the H-1B cap are F1 students who have recently graduated. So F1 graduates are typically eligible for 12 months of OPT um, work authorization. If they have a degree in a STEM field, they may be eligible for an additional two years of work authorization under that STEM extension. Um, so that keeps these students work authorized and it allows them to apply under subsequent caps if they weren't selected in that initial um, lottery. There's a couple things to keep in mind there. The student's degree has to be related to the, the field of work, um, the work that they're being offered. Um, and in the case of those applying for STEM extension, um, they have to go one step further and submit a training plan really detailing how that um, work relates to their degree field. Now, of course, we, we do encounter the situation where somebody runs out of their STEM or STEM OPT time. What, what do you look for next there, Catherine? I think the obvious thing to do at that point would be to look at citizenship because there are a few countries that have treaties in place that allow them to get special visa types that are unique to the country. So this isn't for everybody, but for individuals from Singapore, Chile, Australia, Canada, and or Mexico, there may be options available. Uh, the H-1B1 and the E3 are probably the more straightforward of the options. Uh, the H-1B1, not to get confused with the H-1B itself, is for individuals from Chile and Singapore, and the E3 is for Australians. And the reason I think those are the more straightforward options is that they're more similar to the H-1B, where a professional occupation for a where degree is required and the individual has that degree um, it is the norm. So, th so that's why I like those. The problem with the TN for individuals from Canada and Mexico is that that's not just available based on citizenship. That's actually for very specific categories of jobs. So if the job does fall in one of those categories, it's a great option, but sometimes it's not that straightforward. I know the two of us both have quite a bit of experience in the financial services industry, and we saw what happened to the financial analyst a couple of years ago where uh, the where the options that they would typically rely upon essentially went away based on USCIS guidance. And so um, that can be a little tricky. Um, what are you seeing with TNs these days? Yeah, definitely um, TNs for financial analyst roles really is no longer an option. Um, the other category where we see a fair amount of pushback is for management consultants. USCIS and, and CDP tend to look at that category with a bit of suspicion. The TN can be a great tool because it's you know a pretty quick turnaround if that position does fall um, within one of the designated categories. Within the financial services um, industry, we, we tend to see this used most for stat-based um, roles, so statistician, mathematician, um, economists, and software engineers, the ones we see most frequently. After the treaty-based visas, I think that O-1 is really the only backup if the employee is planning to stay in the U.S., but it's a very high um, legal standard to hit, um, also requires extensive supporting documentation. So to qualify for the O-1, you really have to show that you meet at least three of the regulatory criteria, and depending on the, the field, it just might not apply. 
So types of evidence can include, you know, major media coverage, original contributions to the field, authorship of scholarly articles, that sort of thing. Within the financial services industry, I would say we, we see this more commonly used with senior executives and potentially some of the more research-based roles where an employee has extensive publication citation history. Have you seen any challenges with the O-1? Well, I think where you can run into challenges with the O-1s would be if you are working with an employee who's a pretty recent graduate. A lot of the individuals going through the lottery really are. And I I have seen pushback where USCIS might question how somebody who's just out of school can be extraordinary, which is tough. I, I think that there's certain job categories where it's less of a challenge where the portfolio that would qualify someone for an O may have been developed even in school. I, I think researchers, especially, especially if they're getting PhDs and doing research when they're enrolled in school, they're going to be, they're generally going to have the publications and the citations that they need to qualify for the O1. I think sometimes uh, more artistic jobs can qualify more easily as well. But uh, for, for anything else, it's, we're just more likely to get that pushback where USCIS might say that the individual is, is really too junior in their career to be considered extraordinary. And it's probably worth mentioning L1s as well, because sometimes we'll see similar pushback there. If an employer is a multinational corporation and has the option to transfer somebody to an overseas entity, if they miss the lottery, that can be a short-term option. And, and, and after the individual completes a year of employment abroad, that individual may be able to come back and work in the U.S. on an L-1 visa for an intercompany transferee. But again, I think we do tend to see this, a similar challenge where it may not be the quickest option to bring somebody back on that L because the consulate might then determine that they don't have enough experience with the, with the company uh, to really be specialized enough to qualify for that transferee visa. So you know, that, I think that's a challenge, too, um, in, with some of the other visa types that are big backup options, I would say, for the H-1B. Yeah. And I think just in conclusion, I think, you know, again, we're expecting lower selection rates this year. So I think it's important, you know, where you can to try to enter that registration period in advance and give yourself Um, or your employees, the most amount of attempts under that registration as possible. Definitely. uh, You know, hopefully when you're, or when an employer is hiring somebody early in their OPT, I I will say, just because that's going to be the most common scenario, we'll see that they're hopefully entering them early. Um, And hopefully there are people on other visa types where uh, the H is a better option long-term if they're going to pursue permanent residency. You know, hopefully they're going to be entering those individuals in the lottery early on in their employment as well. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.